Welcome, Mission Church. Our mission is to partner with God. See His kingdom come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven. And we are working to accomplish this goal as we love Jesus, pursue a life that lives like Him, and to, to lead others to Jesus. The past few months, we have been working our way through the Gospel according to Matthew. And this morning, we're continuing this study. Specifically, we are in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And so I'd like to invite you, if you would, grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be in verse 17 through 20. And when you are there, I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. It writes, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, this is a, quite a difficult passage and I pray, Lord, that You would help us to understand clearly what it, what it means and how to apply it to our lives. God, we need Your Spirit to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Lord, we need Your help to understand who You are and, and understand who we are and our need for Jesus. This passage rightfully and helpfully does that and points us to You, Lord Jesus. And I pray that You would convict us of our, our sin, Holy Spirit, and lead us to repentance and greater faith that as a result of our time together in Your Word, Lord, we would be equipped to leave here on the mission that You've called us to as Your church. Lord, I pray that as I preach, the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. Lord, I, I need You this morning, um, every morning, but Lord, You've called me to something that I am desperately in need of your help to accomplish. And so God, we, we look to you this morning and give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Following Jesus in a sin-stained world can be difficult. And as we walk through the labyrinth of shadows where with each passing day, the echoes of decay resonate and the temptation to compromise increases, we find ourselves at a crossroads. And it's here at this pivotal juncture among the somber backdrop of our existence that we encounter a spectrum of responses from Christians. In this shrouded landscape in which we live, we encounter diverse beliefs. Some argue that, that faith in Christ exempts them from any moral obligations. 
That they are released from the responsibility to follow God's law. And the way forward would be to simply unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Others, they pursue unbiblical mysticism. They're drawn to the allure of spiritual experiences and emotions while at the same time sidelining the careful study of God's Word. And still there are those who are beckoned toward the perilous shores of legalism where the letter of the law can drown out the spirit of love as they construct their lives upon pride and self-righteousness. And so as we strive to navigate this delicate balance, there's a question that lies before us this morning, which is how can we faithfully pursue radical kingdom righteousness in a world so dimly lit? And how can we guard against the twin perils of abusing God's grace and legalism? Well, in our text this morning, we uncover the essence of true godliness which is a heart that is set free from the power of Christ by the power of Christ's kingdom and empowered to be obedient to God, His laws, His precepts. And we can be obedient in humility and in love. You see, it's because Jesus fulfilled the law of God that you and I can joyfully embrace God's righteous requirements and that we can break free from the chains of legalism and pursue a life of radical kingdom righteousness and living. Our text this morning reveals, to the, reveals these truths to, to us in two parts. Number one, Christ and the law. And number two, the Christian and the law. Let's begin with part one, Christ and the law. Think back a few weeks ago to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And remember that Jesus is preaching this sermon on the top of a mountain. And remember that this detail wasn't just to help us picture the the scene. It wasn't just simply to create in our mind a, a picture of Jesus on the mountain teaching to His disciples. But Matthew gives us this information for a very specific purpose. See, Matthew, in his Gospel, he wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses. In other words, just as Moses went up on a mountain, Matthew is telling us, so did Jesus. Just as Moses received the law of God on Mount Sinai, Jesus has arrived as the new lawgiver. He is the new Moses. In the same way that Moses spoke with authority, Jesus speaks with authority. In fact, with Jesus, a greater authority has arrived on the scene. He is the long-awaited Messiah who has come to deliver His people from sin and death and to interpret God's law and what God's law requires. Now, although Jesus had just begun His public ministry at this point, He had already ruffled some feathers There are already some folks that were upset with him. The religious leaders specifically were disturbed by what seemed to be an authoritative new teaching that in their mind contradicted the law of Moses. And so as a result, people were questioning what the relationship was between this new authority and the law's authority. Verse 17 begins a discourse that will take us over the next several weeks in Matthew chapter 5. And what Jesus is going to say throughout this chapter, well, it's going to strike the religious leaders like a sledgehammer. 
So that at this point, Jesus, he knows that he's ruffled some feathers and he knows that he's going to be misunderstood. He knows that people are going to believe that what he's doing is working to overthrow and abolish the law and the prophets. That's why he emphatically denies what many people were thinking in this moment. In verse 17, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Now, we need to consider what is the law? What are the prophets? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, the law and the prophets was a common way of, of referring to the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures. The law refers to the Torah, which is the first five books in which Moses is credited for writing. The prophets refer to the rest of the Old Testament, the major, the minor prophets, as well as the Psalms and the wisdom literature. It all is referred to as the prophets. So basically, Jesus is saying here, don't think that I came or I have come to abolish, to do away with, to diminish the Scriptures. The Old Testament. This speaks to the truth that Jesus has a high view of Scripture. Jesus here, He is pointing to the truth that God's Word can be trusted. That it is without error. It is incapable of error. It is authoritative. And Jesus is affirming this. That the entirety of the Scriptures and His teaching and the teachings of the Apostles in the New Testament, they neither contradict nor do they replace the teachings from the Old Testament. In fact, not even the smallest letter, he says. Not even one stroke of a letter will pass away. He's referring to the, the Yod, which is a, it's like an apostrophe in English. It's a, the smallest Hebrew letter. And the stroke of the letter, he is referring to a difference between two letters. Think in your mind, a C and an E. There's just one stroke that changes between the two that makes those two letters different. And so he's saying, not even the, the smallest letter, not even the dot on an I or a, a, a cross on a T will pass away. In other words, Jesus is serious about the eternal quality of His written Word. Which speaks to the truth that, that friends, you and I should also be serious about the eternal quality of the written Word. And we should take God's Word seriously, down to even the most minute detail. Jesus is essentially affirming, again, God's Word is without error and completely trustworthy. And so with this in mind, we can say emphatically that Jesus has not come to do away with the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus says, don't even think about that. Don't even let that cross your mind. Don't even consider that I have come to diminish or or demolish. Don't even assume that I came to dismantle. Or a popular word right now, that I came to unhitch you from the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy it, but I came to fulfill it. In other words, the Scriptures find their fulfillment. They find their intended goal and their purpose and in the life and in the work and the ministry of Jesus. He is the one to whom they pointed. He is the one in whom they predicted and anticipated. See, Jesus here is He's speaking about the exact purpose For why He has come. 
He came to fulfill the Scriptures, to complete what had previously been told to us in shadows and in types in the Old Testament. So, to set the Scriptures aside, to render them obsolete, was never Christ's agenda. What does this mean that He came to fulfill the Old Testament? The truth is, the answer to this question is quite significant. We could spend not only weeks or months, but years breaking down exactly how Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament. And what the, what the Old Testament teaches us about God, about humanity, about salvation. But what we see in the Old Testament is that its teachings are simply, they're, they're a partial revelation. Enter Jesus. Jesus then fulfills those partial revelations and He does throw so through His person. He does so through His teachings, through His work and His ministry. He does so and He gloriously completes the partial teachings of the Old Testament. John Stodd says it like this. He's a famous theologian and he says, the Old Testament is the Gospel in bud and the New Testament is the Gospel in flower, full flower. Second, the Old Testament isn't just a collection of teachings. First, consider that with what John Stott said. There's four distinct ways that Christ has come to fulfill the Old Testament. The first way is that the Old Testament is a treasure trove of doctrinal teachings. The Old Testament teaches us all about who God is. All about salvation. All about humanity. And second, the Old Testament isn't just a collection of teachings, but it's also a prophetic canvas. It looks ahead to the Messiah. It predicts the coming of the Messiah in words and in foreshadows and in types. And Jesus fulfills these prophecies in the sense that that everything that they foretold and predicted and pointed to, He came, it came to fruition in Him. In fact, the climax of the prophetic fulfillment in the entire Old Testament, sacrificial and ceremonial systems find their ultimate realization in Jesus' perfect life, His sacrificial death, and His resurrection from the dead. Understand, Jesus, He did not come to abolish the sacrificial systems or, or ceremonial systems, but rather, those systems find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. You see, they were a shadow while Jesus is the substance. The third way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament is by perfectly keeping and obeying God's moral law. As we read through the Old Testament, we find God's moral law. And we can't help, I don't know about you, but kind of be overwhelmed by the requirements that follow. In fact, God's law is often misunderstood often mistaught and, 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 mis, and, and disobeyed. Many believe that they can keep God's moral law by obeying the external requirements of the law, specifically the Ten Commandments. They could say, I, I haven't murdered, I haven't committed adultery, so I should be fine, right? But Jesus answers that with a big fat no, which we'll see over the next several weeks. That the righteous requirement of the law requires so much more than our external behavior And Jesus will make it clear that He has not done away with those requirements or abolished God's moral law. Rather, He accomplished it by living in perfect obedience to God's moral law. Finally, the fourth way that Jesus fulfills the law is He does so in us, the church. His sons and daughters, those who have trusted in Jesus alone for their salvation, 
And he does so um, through the Holy Spirit. Consider Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 4, which says, Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In other words, you and I are able to follow God's law because of the work and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit living in us. We can fulfill the righteousness of the law by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. This is exactly what the, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied in the Old Testament. He says in Ezekiel chapter 11 that, that I will give them, God will give us integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so that they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. You see, the only hope that we have to even follow God's law is the Holy Spirit living and working in us and through us. Without Him, we are without hope. But friends, this is the good news of the Gospel. You see, the Gospel is not a message of cleaning yourself up and doing something to earn God's love or God's favor. It's not about you being so good and so awesome that you can earn God's attention. The Gospel is not at all about you working your way up to heaven. The Gospel is in the news that that Christ, He left heaven to live among us. Atone for our sin to rescue us. Brothers and sisters, all that God expects from you, He provides for you in Christ Jesus. James Montgomery Boyce is helpful when he says the Bible is about Jesus. And He is the fulfillment in all ways. He fulfills the moral law by His obedience, the prophecies by the specifics of His life, and the sacrificial system by His once and for all atonement. Mission Church, the, possible con- the only possible conclusion here is that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in the most absolute, dynamic way. And this morning, it would benefit us to stand in awe of the matchlessness of Christ. For Jesus is the author of the law. He is its fulfiller. And there's nothing that can compare to Him. This is Christ and the law. And the second point this morning is the Christian and the law. There are many who believe the lie. There are many systems of faith around this lie that are built on this lie. That since we have failed to obey God's law, that Jesus... He simply came to lower God's moral bar for us so that we can then live in obedience to make it easier. But friends, this could not be further from the truth. This is not at all what Jesus has done. Look what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments or commands and and he teaches others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus, He believes that the Scriptures, the law and the prophets should be obeyed. And not only should we obey them, but we should teach others to do the same. 
It's reminiscent of Jesus' charge to us in Matthew 28, isn't it? To make disciples and to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Think about this. If Jesus had come to lessen or to relax or to minish God's moral standards, it would be equivalent to saying that God's holiness that we see in the Old Testament has changed. But we know that that's not true because we know what Hebrews 13.8 says, that God, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know that the holiness of God does not change. That the same, he, he is just as holy today as He was when He gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. You see, His expectations and His demands for His people, for us to be holy, has not changed. So with this in mind, we can know that, that Jesus for sure has not lessened or relaxed God's law. In fact, he very clearly says in verse 19, if you are going to be great in the kingdom of heaven, well, then you need to obey my law and you need to teach others to do the same. It's the only way that you will be great. And on the flip side, if we break or if we trivialize even the smallest letter of the law, if we relax God's moral standards in any way, and if we teach others to do the same, to lessen their expectation to pursue holiness. He says there's some serious consequences. Understand, Jesus doesn't say, well, they couldn't keep the law, so I'll just relax their requirements so they can keep the law. Friends, even if we had one law, I don't know, say, don't eat from that fruit on the tree over there, like somehow, some way, we will find a way to break that. Left to our own devices, we will break that. See, Jesus doesn't lower the bar. In fact, what we will see over the several weeks ahead in the rest of Matthew chapter 5 is that Jesus raises the bar. Actually, He communicates clearly what the original bar was. Jesus clears away the false understandings, the human distortions of God's law, and He clearly teaches the true meaning of the true intention of the law when God give, gave it to us. For example, God's command against murder, as we'll see next week, turns out to be a much higher bar than simply just killing somebody. For even if you are harboring bitterness or anger towards someone, you are guilty of breaking God's law. Friends, what Jesus is communicating the entire Bible is communicating is that it's only through perfect obedience to God's law that you and I could be saved. It's the only way. Brothers and sisters, discipleship in Christ transcends mere adherence to, to feelings or impulses. It encompasses a deep understanding of, of His desires and our, uh, of aligning our lives with His Word. In fact, Jesus' words prepare, prepare us for the radical call that authentic faith inherently demands a commitment to radical personal righteousness. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to get into heaven. Now to the average guy on the street, these words were absolutely shocking. And to those sitting here this morning who are not as fluent in the Gospel, this is pretty discouraging. No one surpassed the scribes and the Pharisees in their ability to obey the law. 
The scribes were the one who, who perfectly tran- or they scribbled <laughs> that scribe. They, they wrote down the law. They copied it. They were the, the, the fax, or not fax machine, what is it? The, the copy machine of the day. All right, the scribes. They knew exactly what the law said. They, they obeyed it. They kept it. And the Pharisees, man, they, they created... You see, there was 613. There is 613 laws in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees created an additional 1,500 laws. They called them fence laws. It was the idea that, that they felt that the best way that they could keep from breaking God's law is to build a protective barrier around God's law with all these other laws... So that way, that would keep them from breaking God's law. But what happened was that, that their laws became just as important that they felt as God's law. And, but they were obedient. And so the average person who heard Jesus say this, unless your righteousness surpasses those guys, you're not going to get into heaven. That was overwhelming. I don't know about you, but I know that I would be disqualified. And definitely disheartened as a result of this. What about you? Can you say that you have kept God's law? Now there are some who, like the Pharisees, they have developed today their own system of legalism and fundamentalism. They too, just like the Pharisees, have created these fence rules to keep them from breaking God's law. They, they don't smoke or chew or date girls who do. Just like the pharisaical man-made laws, they lay their legalistic burdens upon others. But like the Pharisees, their righteousness is not so great. For their righteousness is merely external as well. All the rules they create, all they're doing is trying to insulate themselves from the law's piercing heart demands. The whole point of the law They're creating a self-righteousness that blinds them to their brokenness. Blinds them to their sin and their need for a Savior. I love what J. Gresham Machen, who is an old theologian, he says, the legalism of the Pharisees with its regulation of the minute details of life was not really making the law too hard to keep. It was making it too easy. The truth is, it's easier to cleanse the outside of the cup than it is to cleanse the heart. If the Pharisees had recognized that the law demands not only the observance of external rules, but also and primarily mercy and justice and love for God and men, they would have been so readily satisfied with their measure of their obedience. The law would have been the law would then have fulfilled its great function of being a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. A low view of the law, friends, leads to legalism. And religion. But a high view of the law makes a man a seeker of grace. And what Jesus is trying to help us see here is that there is a high view of the law in which He has come to withhold and, uh, and fulfill so that, that you and I would have a high view of the law and therefore see our need for His grace. See our need for a Savior. See, it was the scribes and the Pharisees, today's fundamentalists and legalists whose own self-righteousness blinds them to what David writes in Psalm 14, 2-3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise. One who seeks God. All have turned away. All 
alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. David is saying all. All people are corrupt. And this includes the Pharisees. This includes the scribes. For even they could not perfectly obey God's laws regarding mercy, regarding justice, regarding the love for God and love for man. The Apostle Paul takes this a step further in Romans 3, verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this truth that every one of us including the Pharisees, including the scribes. We have all broken God's perfect law. And while this reality has pretty serious circumstances, Paul later writes in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is what? It's death. That's what sin earns. Death. But the good news is that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Following rules cannot save you. And anyone who preaches that, that they can is preaching a false gospel. And it's crushing their hearers under a debilitating weight of legalism. But we still have a problem here. Look back at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. We still have a problem. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. It seems as we've worked through these verses, how, how can we get into the kingdom of heaven then? Christ's words here seem hopeless. They seem unbending. But friends, what we need to understand is that verse 20 is actually one of the most grace-filled and kind things that Jesus has said in all of Scripture because what Jesus is doing here is He's pointing to Himself. That's the point of verse 20. He's pointing to Himself as the answer. Jesus is pointing to us our need for Him. Our need for His grace. He's taking us back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who realize that they cannot fulfill the law. Blessed are those who sit in the mess and mourn and grieve their sin. How do we get into the kingdom of heaven? We recognize our complete inability to keep God's law and we recognize that we are completely dependent on God's grace. Tell me, do you recognize? Do you accept that grace is the only way forward? If so, then find your hope in the words of what Jesus says in verse 17, looking back. Don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. You see, these words here are our source of hope because Jesus accomplished what you and I can never accomplish. Whenever he, he achieved what you and I will never be able to achieve. He fulfilled the law. His righteousness surpassed even that of the scribes and that of the Pharisees. And because He fulfilled the law, Jesus now can offer you a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Are you a lawbreaker? Have you fallen short of God's moral standard? Do you need forgiveness? Do you need rest for your weary soul? Do you need a firm foundation to stand upon? Then look to Jesus. Rest in His grace. Come to Jesus in faith. 
Friends, Jesus, He has no sin. He has no lack. He has no weakness. And He is perfectly qualified to be your Savior. Remember, this is why Jesus came. Luke is helpful as he reminds us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to what? He has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come to seek and save the lawbreaker. He has come to seek and to save those who have fallen short of God's moral standard. He has come to offer rest for the weary. He has come to give a solid foundation for those who have built their house on the sand and it has been completely destroyed. He says, come to Me and build your house on the rock. I am enough. He is sufficient. Jesus came to seek us and to save us because of our sin. Because of our law-breaking Friends, we deserve for what we have done. We have even our righteous deeds and our attempt to live a life of righteousness. We deserve the just punishment of a holy and righteous God. You see, if God is to continue being holy, just, and righteous, He must bring judgment upon sinners. It's the only solution to the problem of sin in our life is to seek after God's grace in every area of our life. We need Jesus to be our perfect priest. We need Jesus to be our spotless sacrifice. We need Jesus to go before us into the Holy of Holies so that you and I can stand before a holy and righteous God. And this is good news, friends. Not only is Jesus our perfect priest in our spotless sacrifice, but He lived a perfectly righteous life. Jesus has done everything that the law requires. He took upon Himself the weight of the law's demands against us by dying an innocent death on the cross. And by doing so, He completely satisfied God's just and righteous wrath upon those who trust in Him as Savior and submit to Him as Lord. And now, when you turn to Him in faith, And trust in Jesus as your Savior. Submit to Jesus as your Lord. His perfect righteousness is gifted to you. That means that His perfect obedience to God's law is is now yours. It's counted to you. That your mess and your sin and your brokenness, He took upon Himself on the cross and He gives you His perfection. And now, when you are in Christ you stand before a holy and righteous God. He doesn't see you as the lawbreaker. But He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is clear. It says, He made the One who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, by His perfection and by His keeping of God's moral law, the Gospel holds out that for all those who turn from their sin and look to Jesus, Christ not only forgives you as a priest who has shed His blood for your forgiveness and purification, but He also credits to you His righteousness so that you can stand before God in confidence. See, you you and I, we failed the test before we even took it. We have passed the test not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ 
has done for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one may boast. You are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But listen to me, it doesn't stop here. Yes, if you are a Christian, you have a righteous standing before God. That is true. But Jesus, He wants to teach us His righteousness. He is calling us to pursue obedience. To pursue a life that matches His obedience. I love Psalm 23. It's one of my my favorite portions of Scripture. And in verse 3, and Psalm 23 is really helpful here, for it explains this clearly. Looking to Jesus as our shepherd, it says, He renews my life and He leads me along the right path for His namesake. You see, first, your soul must be restored, renewed by the salvation that only Jesus can give you. Then Jesus trains you to follow Him. And as you follow Him, He leads you to live a life of righteousness. He leads you to to live a life that loves Him, that lives like Him, that leads others to Him. We are saved by grace through faith for a reason. Which Paul writes, looking back at Ephesians 2, the next verse, verse 10, for we are Christ's workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And friends, these aren't good works to earn or, or, or to, to deserve God's love or forgiveness. Remember, we have already failed. Remember, we need Jesus to fulfill the law on our behalf. But when we trust in Jesus, Jesus molds us and He, and he teaches us and He trains us to live lives of righteousness. See, you and I, friends, we are, we are still to pursue a life of holiness. A life that, that continues to pursue obedience to God's moral standards. Yes, it's true, until we are physically with Jesus, sin will remain in our lives. But when we sin, we can be confident that our sin has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. See, the goal is not for us to be sinless. That's not going to happen until we stand before Jesus and we become as He is. But, the, but, but as we follow Jesus, we will sin less. And as you pursue a life that loves Jesus and, and looks like Jesus in this dark and decaying world, we will shine a light so bright that others will glorify our Father in Heaven. So maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't know Jesus. I want to encourage you to seek after His grace. Turn to Jesus by faith. For your only hope in life and death is His perfect life and death and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, You clearly in these just these short verses here. We've done away with these two pillars of, of legalism and antinomianism where we would say that we are not to be hitched to the, the law, but also that we wouldn't live in a self-righteous and prideful way. 
but Lord, that we would look to you and you alone as the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's our only hope. And that we are free now to pursue a life of obedience, knowing that when we sin, that you are just and faithful to forgive us of our sin, knowing that your Holy Spirit resides in us, changing our desires, changing our longing and and developing in us a longing to be with you, a longing to follow you and obey you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do that in our hearts and lives this morning, that we would be so moved by the good news of the Gospel that we would not only turn from sin, but turn to a life of obedience. Obedience that can be described as joyful. Lord, because we long to be with You, we long to live like You and to lead others to You. We thank You for equipping us this morning and as we leave here today, I pray, Lord God, that You would use us, as we talked about last Sunday, as the light and the salt in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces. Lord, that You would use us to do the works that You created beforehand for us to walk in. Lord, that You would be glorified, that people would see our works and glorify You and perhaps come to the same saving faith that You have given us. Lord, we thank You and give You all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.